All right, so we're, uh, we are officially in the Advent season, and um, this morning we're going to uh, be taking a look at uh, a section of the Christmas story that, let's just be honest, we don't usually spend a whole lot of time focusing on. Um, typically at Christmas we're talking about joy and happiness and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Um, those are the sorts of things we're, we're typically contemplating at this time of year. It's a happy time, right? Um, it's a time where we're joyous, joyously celebrating with family and we're uh, spending time together. And, and the, the reality is there's a lot more going on. Um, than perhaps we uh, we have really thought about and like to uh, consider. Um, there are a number of stories like this, but there's one um, particular story. It was uh, December 24th of 1914, in the in the middle of World War One, and um, and the story is that on Christmas Eve the the Brits were in their trenches, the Germans were in their trenches, and and um, and as typically would happen in the evening, the fighting had kind of died down from the day. And that evening, the Brits could hear the Germans singing carols, and uh, and so they they joined in singing those carols that the Germans were singing. And then uh, and then on Christmas morning at the at first light, they saw. German soldiers emerging from their trenches with no weapons, and they started to make their way across no man's land, and as they did, they, um, in broken English, began to say, Merry Christmas. And the Brits thought at first, there's something's not right here, um, and they, uh, they were thinking this was uh, some sort of a ruse, a, a trick. And um, but as it, the, the morning wore on, they realized they were genuinely engaging them, and so the Brits came out of their trenches. And the story is that in certain places um, that uh, Christmas Day, the Brits and the Germans laid down their arms and they celebrated Christmas together. They had a Christmas truce, and and for a day they ceased fighting. Um, it's a beautiful picture, and uh, if you know anything about the Civil War, there there are stories um, about similar sorts of things happening during the Civil War, um, where there would be a, a truce as the two sides paused and thought about Christmas and celebrated Christmas together. The story that we have before us is no such story. It, it is a reminder for us that there is a deep, deep, deep struggle at play. And there's a war that's taking place. And, and this story is a story of a, of a dreadful Christmas. Um, and so what we want to do is we want to kind of break this down into two parts. We're going to look at the small picture. We're going to look at what's, what's in the text, what's happening right here as we look at Matthew chapter 2. And then we want to back up and we want to look at the, the, 
the macro view. We want to look at the big picture. What, why? Why this reaction by Herod? We want to back up and look at that. There's a story behind the story, right? There, there was more going on than initially meets the eye. If you watched the Iron Bowl yesterday, <laughs> on the last play of the game, there was a story that was going on behind the story. Okay? And the story was that Gus Malzahn ran the punter onto the field as a wide receiver. And, and so there was this, but nobody knew. Like, we weren't privy to any of that until after the game, right? Anyways, I had to I work something in there. It's a lame attempt. All right. But there's a, there's a story behind the story. So we want to look at the, what's happening. Let's talk about what's taking place. All right. Let's start there. Let's back up and do the, the, the macro view. And then from the macro view, what we want to do is we want to say, all right, let's, let's look at our lives. Um, let's, let's look at what happens when the king enters our life. Okay. So let's talk about the story. And essentially, what's taking place is this. Jesus has been born, okay? Verse 1 of chapter 2, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and, um, and Herod is the king, okay? Herod has this um, ongoing connection with Rome, all right? So he's in their good graces. He's, he's taken sides. He has the position. He's, he's something of a figurehead, but he, but he has a great deal of power. And so the Magi from the east have come to Jerusalem, and they're asking, hey, where's this one that's been born who's king of the Jews? All right? Herod hears that, and his antenna go up. Now, here's what you've got to know about Herod. First, this is near the end of his life, okay? And it's said that he, he suffered all sorts of ailments and ills and, and, and essentially near the end of his life was, was kind of losing his mind, if you will. And, um, but he was a bad dude, okay? Any way you slice it, Herod was an ugly figure. When, when Herod came on the scene, okay, he had killed everyone in the dynasty that was previous to him, right? He had them all murdered. He killed every last one of them because he didn't want there to be any, any threat um, to his reign. And then all through his reign, there story after story. Of, this guy, he was incredibly paranoid. And I guess living in that day and age, right, where you, you never knew who was friend and who was foe, it, it was somewhat common, I, I guess, but there was hardly anyone in his sphere who didn't ultimately meet a terrible demise. His most, the most loved of his nine wives, um, nine wives, okay, the, most, the one that he loved the most in the end, um, someone in his family sphere tricked him into believing that she was trying to, to take his crown. And so... He had her killed. And then he had his three sons by her killed. Okay? At one point during his reign, 
uh, he, he had half of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of like the, the Jewish, uh, the the, uh, the the Jewish High Court of the day. And and at one point during his reign, he had half of the Sanhedrin killed. I mean, that would be like the president having three or four of the Supreme Court justices beheaded. Okay, that that that's kind of the parallel. Um, he, he was just a bad guy. Um, he uh, at one near the end of his life, as he was as he was about to die, he tried to commit suicide. He he was not successful, and as he neared death, um, he had all of the officials of his court brought in, and and the pronouncement that Herod made was, "Upon my death, I want all of my court to be put to death in my honor." Right? That's the kind of guy that we're talking about. And so it's not surprising, okay, if you go and you, you know, if you watch a history channel or a Discovery Channel special on who is Jesus and who was Herod, they're, they're going to poo-poo the story that you find in Matthew chapter 2. They're going to say it's folklore because Josephus, the Jewish historian, didn't record any of what happened in this story. And that's probably because there are wild estimates of 14,000 children that were, were killed in this story, but, but more reliably, um, because Bethlehem was not a, a very large place. There would have probably only been 20 or so young boys at two and under at that point. So it's not a, it's not a massive killing. It's just a targeted killing. It, it's a, it's a, of young, innocent boys, all because... And, and here's the issue. All because he felt threatened. He felt threatened by the arrival, okay? Notice, arrival as the Magi come. Where is the one who has been born, what? King of the Jews. Who's king of the Jews? Herod is. All right? And you, he is not going to allow another king on the scene. So verse 3, when he heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. And he called together everybody, and, and, uh, and he, you know, attempted a search. And then he told the Magi, look, when you find him, come, let me know so that I can go and worship him. And of course, they were in uh, on, and they were in the know. And so after they found and they presented their gifts, uh, they went back another way. And when Herod realized it, that's when he pitched his plan. And his plan was to have all of the children, two boys, two years, and, uh, um, uh, two years old and, and younger, to have them killed in the vicinity of Bethlehem. A brutal picture of a man who, in the midst of what we consider to be the most joyous occasion, right? The birth of Jesus, the Son of God, becomes man. So for us, that is, that's an amazing story. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what this is all about. For Herod, it was a dreadful day. It, it, it caused fear in his heart because there was a a new king in town who was trying to take his power. That's how he saw it. That's how he felt it. And so 
that's the that's the initial story as we just look at at um, Matthew chapter two. That's the basic breakdown of the story. Let's talk a little bit about the bigger picture. The bigger picture is this. The bigger picture is that since the beginning, there has been an ongoing, unfolding conflict that's been taking place. So um, we, we had, I had read for you um, Genesis chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, turn all the way back to that first book, Genesis chapter 3, and let's, let's just look at that one verse, verse 15. Because this sets the stage. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, set the stage for everything that is going to happen. And it actually is setting the stage for where we're at this morning in Matthew chapter 2 with the birth of Jesus. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So this is, okay, the, the Lord is pronouncing his curse. And in verse 15... He says, he's saying to the serpent, and I will put enmity, okay? I'm going to, there's going to be an issue. There's going to be a separation between you, serpent, and the woman, right? So right away, God says, look, there is, there's a division here between the serpent and the woman. And then he, he goes to the next level. And between your offspring, serpent, okay? between the serpent's offspring and her offspring. All right? So now we've got a woman. We've got Eve. All right? And she is going to be bearing children. And the serpent is going to be bearing children. Are you with me? And those two are going to be, there's going to be a division between them. And then notice the next level. He... Okay, so now we've gone from the collective whole, the children. Now the curse becomes very specific, and it becomes a promise. He, that is one, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So right out of the gate, as we're we're there and. Genesis 3.15, God announces a curse that has attached into it a promise for us. And that is that there is going to be this division between the seed, the children of the serpent, and the children of the woman. And they are going to run down through history. Okay, And so as we make our way through the Bible, that is the story. So every time there's a new leader that comes on the scene, every time there's there's, there's a, 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 you know, someone new that God raises up. Oh, 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 is this the one? Is this the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent? See, that's the story. That's, that's the Bible story in a nutshell right there. So we're waiting. We're waiting for the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Okay? So all down through history. Is it, is it Saul? Oh, Look, okay, you know, remember Samuel's anointing of Saul, and he's going to lead his people, and is Saul the guy? Hmm, no. 
Who follows Saul? David. Is David the guy? Stay tuned. Because in January, we're going to 2 Samuel, right? And we're going to spend time in 2 Samuel. Is David the guy? It's a shameless pitch for the 2 Samuel series. No, David's not the guy. But the son of David, okay, one who's coming, he's going to be the one. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. So we're waiting, right? We're waiting for that figure to arrive on the scene. And we get to Genesis chapter 2, and guess what? He's the one. This is the one. And, and there's this petulant, petty king on the scene, and his name's Herod. And the, he is the seed of the serpent, okay? And so he is at odds with King Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene. Herod sees it. He is playing a part of the picture. So if you've got your Bibles, go all the way to the other end. Go all the way to Revelation not Revelations, go to Revelation chapter 12, all right? And, and I want you to see, right? So we're looking at the macro view now. So we've had the micro view. Herod, he's a petulant little king. He's got his own little kingdom. He feels threatened. It's all about Herod, right? No, it's not all about Herod. It's all about the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, Let's just start in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. The whole chapter is the macro, but I just want you to see just a a little bit of it. Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is Israel. She was pregnant. She was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another great sign appeared in in heaven. Behold, a giant red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled to the wilderness. Verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And so the great dragon is thrown down, that ancient what? Serpent who is called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. (coughs) Sorry. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels are thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by what? The blood of the Lamb. All right. You, you can read more of that backstory, but you're reading, all right, and you we're correct if when you read that part of the story, you hear that there was the dragon waiting to devour the child, the son. You're correct if at that moment you understand, aha, 
Herod is the what? He's the dragon. He's there. He's waiting. See, he is a part of the plan. He's a part of the, he's on, he's on the losing team. He's on the wrong side. But he is a part of this big grand drama. So he's out there living life, right? Herod is connected to Rome. He's doing his thing. He's got his own desires. He's got his own heart's desires. But what are those desires? They're desires of the seed of the serpent. And it just so happens, oh, by the way, that king of the Jews really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, coming into the world. And so there's this grand drama going on at the same time as Herod's just living out his life. He is just doing his thing. But when a king comes on the scene, it challenges the status quo. And so there's this big story behind the little story. And the big story is God is moving. And he is doing big things. And when the king comes, all bets are off. Everything changes. It's it's said, you know, when we kind of now make this transition, okay, so big grand drama, big story. What about What about the king coming and impacting your life and my life? What happens when the king shows up for us, right? What happens when in your life the king finally appears? And and the Bible answers that question, right? And it tells us that when the king shows up, right, when we are found to be in Christ, behold, all things are new. The old is gone. The new has come. There's a transition. We go from death to, we go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of, okay, so there's a transition that takes place. But here's the reality. The reality is that that doesn't happen all the way, right? So let me ask, behold, All things have been made new. The old has gone. The new has come. Any of y'all, any of y'all not have any of that old hanging around? I I didn't think so. Yeah. There's, There's the old, right? And so when the king comes, he creates an issue for us. Here's the thing. You cannot ignore him. You can't, you, you're either going to be Right? You're going to hate him. You're going to love him. But you can't be just unaffected by him. You can't just sit idly by when Jesus, when, when you finally know who he is, something's got to happen. Something has to change. Everyone is going to make a decision. You'll, you will either just blow him off, you'll worship him, but you can't just say, uh, He's just a king because he changes everything. And when he arrived on the scene, the entire universal everything changed. It all changed. And the reality is for us is that it changes. And, and it, for the Christian, it sets off a grand battle. 
right? And the grand battle, okay, so there's a big battle that's happening way back here. Guess what? Not your concern. Not your worry. If you are, if you are focused on the big battle, right, if you're focused on, you know, I'm just. I'm gonna. I, I want to challenge you. If your focus comes from Fox News and MSNBC and CNN, all right. If you're if if the world media story is driving your life, you're missing it. Okay, because you can talk about nations. You can talk about China and Russia and the Ukraine, and you can talk about Great Britain, and you can talk about France and Germany and Iraq and Iran and. Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. You can talk about all those countries. You can talk about all those moving parts and, and all the stuff that's going on. You can, you can spend all kinds of time focusing on the macro, okay, trying to read tea leaves and miss where the real battle is. You can miss what Jesus came to do, and that is he came to change hearts and minds and lives for those who follow him. And so he enters into our life. And guess what? Boom! Now there's this huge battle, there's this huge struggle between the new you and the old you. You lose sight of that battle, okay? You lose sight of the fact that, oh, by the way, behold, he's making all things new in me, okay? And you, you're focused on, you know, somebody shot a missile at somebody today and and, and, you know, the world's against us and Islam. And you focus on all that stuff, you're going to miss the fact that the biggest struggle in life is happening every single day in your heart. I want you to, t- I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 7. Because that battle, Jesus coming in Matthew chapter 2, sets off a huge grand struggle, not just in the world, but in us. Because the Bible tells us now that when you're in Christ, right, you have the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and in my life. And that Spirit taking up residence in our lives triggers and sets off a battle in our hearts that is unlike anything else going on. Because He is taking you and me, and he's refashioning us after the image of his son. And so listen to the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter chapter 7. Let's just pick up, what, verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, I no, no longer, it's not I myself who do it, but it is what? Sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. And if I do what I do <laughs> now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but what? Sin living in me. And so I find this law at work when I want to do good, 
evil or the flesh is right there with me. In my heart of hearts, I delight in God's law, but there's another law at work in my members. You have to go through, parse it all down, but here's what he's saying. I have a desire, and my desire as a believer, as a follower of Christ, is to do the good he has for me to do. But at the moment when I really want to do the good he has for me to do, that guy cuts me off on I-20, and I lose my stuff. Okay? So when I'm wanting to do good, right, the flesh is right there prompting me. The old man is there. He's in my ear. He's in my heart. He's in my head. When, when I, I want to do good and somebody comes along and they prompt me, they make me, they made me say it and do it. No, the old man living in you made you do it. And don't say the devil made me do it, okay? He's got far more important things to worry about than you and me. I, I, I don't know that any of us are causing him that much worry, all right? You and I have enough to deal with, with the old man. I, that's probably just the reality. I don't think I, I don't think I'm doing such a grand job that he's got to be too worried about me. The old man is plenty enough, right? And so that's the question. You move into Christmas. You think about all the grand stuff, but here's the reality. The reality is Jesus comes on the scene. And he sets loose a firestorm in your life. Are you engaged in that battle, in that struggle? Are, are you slaying the old man every turn, every chance? Can, you know, object number one, not every day, not most days. I struggle sometimes to be in that fight, in that battle. I know it's there. I know it's rage. I know what he wants. I know he wants me to pursue him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I know he wants me to love my neighbors, myself. Guess what? That old man is there, and half of the time he's got me pinned to the mat, and he's wearing me out. And what does Paul say? If you've still got your Bible open to Romans 7, what does he say when he gets to the very end? Verse 25. He says, look, half the time the flesh has got me pinned to the mat. What do I do? Where do I turn? Chapter 7, verse 25. But thanks be to God for Jesus. Thanks be to God that Jesus brought enough grace and paid for enough sin that even when I don't get it right, He did. That's the message. A dreadful Christmas in Bethlehem was the firestorm that set off the battle that you and I deal with and have in our lives each and every day. Look, there is a grand battle going on, all right? Don't kid yourself. You watch the news, you listen to it all, yes, look. It is, but it is his grand chessboard. It's not yours to worry about. 
And so you, you spend all your time focused on that, and you can miss the fact that the biggest, grandest battle, that the battle that really is going to make the difference is in you and me. You know why? Because he chose us. Okay? The church, his people, Jesus came, he became a baby, he lived his life, he died so that he would purchase a people who would extend his kingdom. That's why he's at work in you. That's why he's that's why he's so interested and has such a vested interest in your life and my life looking more like his life. Because he is taking the church and using his people to expand his kingdom. So by default, we're his world changers. We're we're doing battle. But here's the thing. We don't do battle the way that Herod did battle. Okay? We don't do battle the way the grand dragon's doing battle. We're, we're, that's not the battle for us. Jesus changed all the rules. Okay? So here's the thing. You want to be at odds? You want to be at odds with people? People who, right? Where are our country is going to hell in a handbasket. It's terrible. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're taking over here. And what did he say? Jesus said, look, they hated me. They hated me first. They're going to hate you because you're my people. And you're going to extend my kingdom in this world. And don't do it by fighting with them. Do it by loving them. And he totally changed. He changed the big fight and he made it. A different fight. And so there's a battle raging in you, and at the same time there's a battle raging in the world that he has called you and I to go fight, but with totally different weapons. Look, and that's what makes it that's what makes it so dramatic, right? Because you don't have the weapons that you need if he's not doing the work in you. You can't fight the battle he wants you to fight. You can't be in the battle he wants you to be in if you aren't being remade after his image. And that's why the battle in you matters so much. That's why, you, that's why you've got to go to ground every single day. And it's a call to arms for your heart. And it matters for your heart because you and I are the world changers.